You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. My name is Rowan Conway. I am Director of Research and Innovation here at the RSA. We're delighted to welcome you all for this evening's special event. This evening we're exploring the power of community. We've gathered together to mark the completion of an RSA um, collaboration with the LSE and the University of Central Lancashire, a study that sought to understand the power of communities and their social connections and how they affect um, health and well-being. We started in 2010 to test the concept that stronger and more civic-minded communities can generate what we've now termed community capital. We used co-production methods with communities in seven locations across England, um, and where what we really wanted to explore was the ways in which community-based networks are formed and their purpose and their function, the behaviour of these local networks, and um, we really looked at a social network survey to understand their well-being and how they were connected to each other. We then worked with co-production methods to understand the assets of local networks and then co-produce and co-design with these communities different community-level interventions that suited the needs of that particular locality. And then finally, in our last year, we've been working very closely with the LSE and UCLan to understand how to evaluate these kinds of pilot interventions to gauge the economic and well-being value of social network interventions. Broadly speaking, our model of change is very simple. It is understand, involve, connect. Effectively, we worked with a co-production method that engaged with communities directly to map with them the assets and relationships in that community or around a particular individual. We would then involve the, um, based on that that survey data, we would then involve and co-produce interventions with participants and service providers working together to develop shared solutions. So this became things like um, peer support groups or um, mothers, mothers groups that working on social isolation. Thereafter, we wanted to aim to connect them. So we facilitated platforms that enabled social connections, brokering individuals to be the sources of support or weaving networks among people and groups. So we were really the broker in that. We were matchmaking, if you like, but we weren't actually... And we were enabling rather than forging these um, activities... And what we saw over the, over the lifetime of this project was a growth in this community capital, which ultimately we defined in terms of different kinds of dividends. And David will talk to what those dividends are when he gives his response later. But just to quickly eke out what we saw in the well-being dividends. So we used the Warwick-Edinburgh um, mental well-being scale and we, we worked with participants to develop and co-produce activities and interventions that would t- directly target their well-being. And what we saw from, the, from this um, study was that a feeling as part of a community had led to greater satisfaction due to enhanced relationships and that that social support, and it albeit a very small cohort, could demonstrate that it could protect against harm to mental and physical health. And what we saw is there was a participant's average increase in well-being measures after the Connected Communities pilot inter- interventions of over 20% in some instances. So... There was a a, a well-being dividend of life satisfaction that was 15%, feeling that life is worthwhile, which went an upgrade of 20%. And then actually, if you look at it against the the average, um, the UK average, which was the, the, the the third bar there, effectively, we saw an increase beyond the average. So... 
The data was very exciting and compelling for us. What we want to do with this event tonight is to to think about communitarian efforts and and how they can be seen by policymakers, how they can be um, enhanced by communities, and then further investigate how we can create health and well-being from these um, activities. We're going to start with Matthew Taylor, thinking about what this means for policymakers, and then we're going to defer to the panel that I shall introduce later. But before we move on, without further ado, over to you, Matthew Taylor. Thank you, Ron. Uh, So forgive me uh, reading uh, my speech. One of the uh, sobering experiences that I've had in uh, delivering speeches on a quite frequent basis... By the way, I'm still available at pre-Christmas rates, if anyone's interested. Um, Is that while people are often kind of polite about what I say, they're sometimes even enthusiastic, uh, on closer inquiry, they they seem to have taken in remarkably little of what I've actually said. Um, It kind of reminds me of Woody Allen once said, um, he said, I've done a speed reading course. I read War and Peace in five hours. It's about Russia. Um, So I think maybe it is that I speak too quickly. Uh, uh, anyway, also tonight, I want to try and make two rather subtle arguments, at least subtle by my standard. I was once described as a think tank director who was more tank than think. Um, so, uh, given that I'm trying to be slightly nuanced, you'll have to excuse me uh, reading from a script. I want to start with um, the fact that we're always, I think, uh, policymakers in government, in think tanks, uh, in one way or another, focused on improving the effectiveness, efficiency, and popularity of public services. It's a constant concern. And at any time, hundreds, thousands of change processes are being pursued. But behind that pursuit of continuous improvement, there are also more basic debates prompted by a sense that the public policy challenges we face cannot be met by uh, incrementalism. So in areas ranging from health to social care to policing to housing, voices are raised calling for a paradigm shift, not just improving or restructuring public services, but indeed reconceptualising them in the light of modern expectations, capabilities and needs. So starting from a presumption in favour of community-based solutions, uh, the RSA's research and experimentation has provided insights into a, a set of questions in areas including how to boost public service volunteering, how to strengthen social networks in deprived communities, how to sustain people's recovery from addiction... And this work, and Rowan's talked uh, about some of it, it's important and valuable, but it's also part of a bigger debate about social and public policy. And it's it's aspects of this wider debate that I want to explore. So the first thing I I want to get to is is a kind of divide. Um, Now, this dichotomy has been given various names, but um, uh, there's a discernible, albeit somewhat fuzzy, boundary between what might be termed communitarian on the one hand, and technocratic, on the other hand, approaches to public and social policy. For the technocrats, the search is for scalable solutions. Once the right intervention is identified, it's then a matter of arranging things so that this solution can be delivered as reliably and as uniformly as possible. This is what Sir Michael Barber, one of the world's most influential thinkers on public policy, admiringly calls deliverology. Uh, For advocates of this approach... The march of big data, the scope for cheaper, faster research, makes a case for top-down, one-best-way solutions stronger than ever. I was reading a blog last week from Adrian Brown uh, about the fact that big data is actually going to renew the argument for centralised technocratic solutions. In recent decades, the top-down approach to public services has been supplemented by the use of 
market mechanisms. Now, there's no reason why technocratic and market-based approaches can't be put, put together, although I think many of you will sense that in areas such as the NHS and schools, tight regulatory regimes, technocratic regimes, sit uneasily alongside quasi-market mechanisms with the combination too often militating against collaboration and innovation. So you've got the kind of technocratic approach, uh, and in recent years bolted onto that, somewhat um, clumsily often, market mechanisms. But for communitarian approaches, in contrast, it's the quality of engagement amongst frontline providers, clients, and citizens that's crucial. Successful interventions are not the result, generally speaking, of uniform service delivery, but arise from solutions co-produced through relationships between and among local agencies, service providers, and citizens. Power in this model is decentralised, uh, and the boundaries between the bureaucratic rationale of the state and the affective domain of civil society are deliberately blurred. Now, most of us would claim to be pragmatic, being technocratic when there's one best way to do something, communitarian when the case for local solutions seems strong. But in my experience, the two tribes, and there are two tribes, have a tendency to exaggerate the evidence for their positions and to caricature the, their opponent's position. And to an extent, of course, people's opinions are shaped by their roles and functions. Ministers and civil servants tend to err on the side of top-down technocracy. Third sector organisations, particularly local ones, tend towards communitarian solutions. Now, the communitarian tribe will welcome several reports from the RSA, a couple of them published, one in the next few weeks. Uh, our work on volunteering calls for unpaid citizen effort to be seen as an integral part of public service models. The Connected Communities report that Rowan's referred to demonstrates the benign impact on well-being and other objectives of initiatives based on strengthening social networks, while the evaluation of our whole person recovery project, which will be published in a few weeks, shows the efficacy of creating recovery communities of service users, carers and volunteers. These and other RSA reports make a strong case for an approach based on locally implemented, co-designed and co-delivered interventions in which the efforts of professionals and paid workers are blended with the voluntary contribution of clients, individuals and social networks. However, the advocates of communitarian approaches, in my view, should be honest and realistic about the kind of evidence that we have to hand. Our research, the RSA's research, demonstrates measurable and significant gains from community-based initiatives. For example, that whole person recovery work I talked about delivered on all its payment-by-results targets. But I don't think we can suggest that the outcomes are unprecedented or that they're always spectacular. The evidence is promising, but it's not conclusive. Also, by their very nature, these locally specific, relational, emergent methods depend hugely on the quality of the people implementing them, the context in which they're working, the relationships they're able to build. At the best of times, the public sector finds it difficult to transfer good practice and scale up. But in the case of communitarian approaches, it's even more unwise to make the assumption that because something works in one place, it will work equally well in another. So the first argument I want to make to you, and there are only two, uh, is that the case for community-based policy interventions can't rely on evidence alone. So what then is the nature of that case? An argument made here at the RSA a few years ago by the eminent criminologist, Professor Shab Maruna, is, I think, a good starting point. Uh, he was speaking about the debates between the advocates of community rehabilitation and prison incarceration. Maruna argued that the conclusions drawn from a huge body of, of research actually reflected 
On the one hand, the broader context of criminal justice policy, ideology and finance. But on the other hand, he said, what, what it showed really, because the evidence was inconclusive, was the importance of the choice of the things that we care about. So what values, he asked, do we want our policy to reflect and reinforce? In relation to criminal justice, Maruna argued, if we value redemption and forgiveness as the norms underpinning public policy, we prefer rehabilitative strategies. If, in contrast, principles of moral certitude, commensurate punishment are prized, then incarceration is likely to be seen as the most effective policy. And equally up for debate are outcomes while the evidence of the merits of incarceration or rehabilitation for reoffending is complex, community-based sentences appear demonstrably better in their wider outcomes for families and disadvantaged communities, particularly in relation to family poverty and children's well-being. So my argument is that the power of research findings on communitarian interventions similarly depend on our value choices and our outcome horizon. Even if the evidence about what works is inconclusive, communitarians should simply prefer solutions which rely upon and foster agency among citizens to ones that treat people as mere service consumers or clients. In the terms of political philosophy, communitarian solutions both rest upon and encourage what Richard Dagger refers to as civic virtue. He describes it as this. The virtuous citizen must be free, but not simply free to go his or her own way, Instead, the citizen is free when he or she participates in the government of his or her community. And, of course, that chimes absolutely with the RSA's modern mission, the power to create, expanding the scope for human agency. But also arguing, uh, echoing the structure of Maruna's argument, that normative dimension, that value dimension, underpinning communitarian approaches, can also be reinforced by a wider evaluative lens, as well as the specific service-related outcomes that, are, that connected communities and whole-person recovery uh, show improvements in, in uh, um, they also demonstrate a wider rippling effect on underlying individual well-being and civic capacity. Unfortunately, most programmes aren't funded to enable fuller evaluation. Indeed, one of the recommendations of our whole-person recovery project is for a longer-term measure of individual recovery, Yet I think, having read these reports, that it's a strong hypothesis that the habits of individual agency, collaboration, problem-solving inculcated by these programmes will persist in people and places. Thus, individual communitarian initiatives may have an enduring effect on what the sociologist Robert J. Sampson has referred to as collective efficacy, a concept not a million miles away from community capital, This combination of cohesion and agency was identified by Sampson's research team as the critical factor explaining why similarly socioeconomically endowed neighbourhoods in Chicago continued for decades to generate very different outcomes in terms of measures of population well-being, such as crime, public health, family breakdown. My view is that this civic externality should be an underlying aim of all communitarian approaches, whereas in technocratic approaches it tends to be seen as irrelevant or exogenous. The second and final point I want to make is that that making the fullest and best case for the communitarian way mustn't involve us rejecting other approaches. After all, if I need a new hip and there's one best way to perform the procedure, I want systems to ensure best practice is followed. I have no desire for my surgeon to consult me or my wider neighbourhood before following clinical guidelines. More broadly, the value of communitarian approaches can be enhanced by thinking about the contribution they make to the elusive goal of system change. 
To this end, the RSA has used a framework derived from cultural theory to explain how best to produce solutions to complex problems. Our application of the theory sees human behaviour in groups, organisations, institutions, emerging from the interaction of three active elements. These elements are the foundational sources of how we see the world, of how we are in the world, and how we seek to change the world. We call these three elements individualism, hierarchy, and solidarity. And in summary, individualism can be understood as the element associated with self-interest, benign or otherwise, competition, enterprise. In public policy, we tend to associate that with market mechanisms. Hierarchy is based on the sense that there is or needs to be order in the world. It's about making and obeying strategies, plans, rules. We tend to associate that with that top-down state approach. Solidarity is about belonging and believing something which can inspire both altruism and trust, but also tribalism and fear of change. Uh, Our view is that the best solutions are ones that combine all those three drivers of change, that combine hierarchy, solidarity and individualism to produce what cultural theorists call clumsy uh, solutions. Indeed, I think I'd go further. The best communitarian solutions are those which are compatible with hierarchical and individualistic interventions. So such approaches to complex problems combine the mobilisation of social bonds and norms and the building of civic capacity, the solidaristic drive, with the power of intelligent strategy, leadership and policy, the hierarchical drive, and innovation and individual incentives, the individualistic drive. Now the challenge of all this, a fascinating challenge, also deeply frustrating one very often, is that the underlying logic of these different approaches often clashes, and the worldview of their advocates can lead to them seeing not only solutions, but even defining problems very differently. Let me give you a couple of examples that I've heard about actually just in the last week. Uh, One of the big issues for the NHS right now is that there's a lot of creativity taking place in networks, networks around people who share long-term conditions, networks being built around people who need care. And there's a lot of dynamism about this, but the big problem is how on earth do these networks interface with the kind of hierarchical way in which the NHS works? So people can see that these things need to work together, but it's extremely hard in reality to make them work together. Or take another example, the idea of social investment, social impact bonds. Now this is supposed to kind of mobilise individualistic power because it's around people competing for contracts, delivering results, getting more payment if they get it right, so there are incentives built in. The problem of this approach, in my view, is it often leads to very narrow focus on single linear interventions, on single outcomes, and not on whole systems. So how do we, how do we build in that idea of social investment, payment by results, those kind of ideas, which are perfectly good ideas, but how do we connect them to a, an overall system approach? Now, all this might seem blindingly obvious, but in my view, it's rare for any solution to both try to mobilise all three forms of social power whilst also acknowledging the difficulty of balancing those uh, three approaches and, and the most difficult thing, sustaining that balance over time. Uh, Just to give you a bit of encouragement uh, in this idea, I think we should be encouraged by the findings of Hillary's erstwhile colleague uh, to participle, Charlie uh, Leadbeater. He looked at organisations all around the world and he said that the most effective organisations... He characterised it in a single phrase. He said they were creative communities with a cause, which I think rather neatly connects the idea of strategic leadership, cause, collective values and endeavour, community, and the scope for individual risk-taking and agency, uh, the creative part um, of the formula.
The idea that public service solutions should summon up and enhance the capacity for self and mutual help among citizens, particularly those most dependent on public services, has actually been around for as long as the modern state. But in recent times, in the face of changing public expectations, the intractability of certain complex social problems, the impact of austerity, this idea of building people's capacity has come particularly to the, sh- to the fore. In our work, the RSA's work on connected communities, on whole person recovery and other reports, uh, we, I think, have added important insights and evidence to the communitarian case. But what I've argued in my comments tonight is that evidence needs to be seen in the light of our philosophical orientation and in terms of the need to focus on the wider goal of building community resilience and capacity as well as delivering short-term outcomes. Furthermore, complex problems need a whole system approach. Communitarian interventions are a challenging but vital part of such solutions, but they work best when combined with benign forms of hierarchy and with the scope for individualistic experimentation. I hope now that the future work that the RSA does in this area will turn increasingly to the question of how it is we achieve this difficult and powerful balance between the forms of social power available to us. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Um, We'll now turn to our panel to respond to Matthew's provocations. We've brought together an exceptionally interesting group of people tonight, and I'm very um, excited to hear their responses. Um, Our panel tonight features Hilary Cotton, an internationally acclaimed innovator and social entrepreneur. At the heart of Hilary's work is a simple idea that if we start with people and their human connections, we can bring about radical social change. Her recent projects have included new systems to support an ageing population, a prison that reduces reoffending, and new approaches to chronic disease and unemployment. Tobias Jones is a journalist and author and documentary maker who's worked in the UK and Italy. He now lives at Windsor Hill Wood in Somerset with his wife and three children, where he runs a working farm refuge. His life is the subject of his latest book, A Place of Refuge, an Experiment in Communal Living. And David Morris has been my colleague for um, recent years in the Connected Communities programme. He's Professor of Mental Health, Inclusion and Community at the Centre for Community and Citizenship at the University of Central Lancashire, and is a co-author of the RSA's Community Capital Report. We will start now with Tobias, so please join me in welcoming um, Tobias Jones. Thank you. It's very exciting to be here. I've been, um, as Somerset, backwoodsman for the last decade, talking about all these things and living in community and researching community. And so to suddenly be at the RSA, you know, with the idea that this might be a possible solution to all sorts of uh, social and health problems is very exciting. The report, Connected Communities, um, uses the word community almost 600 times. And I just thought it would be very important to define my understanding of the word because it's one of those buzzwords in the modern lexicon that is used again and again almost like a balm on the sores of contemporary society. We never quite know what it means. Um, And to me, it simply means holding things in common, sharing things, Um, be it parks, gardens, lawnmowers, bicycles, knowledge, resources buildings, roofs and walls. I mean, it's interesting that we don't often talk about communalism, and I think communalism is a very important part of the, the matrix of solutions for social problems, that there has to be a residential element to community. It has to mean more than simply divvying up a Victoria sponge once a week, for example. 
the other side of community, etymologically, munia means responsibility or duty or obligation, a pooling of duties. And actually what we find in our sanctuary is that the more duties you give people, actually the more integrated they are. So if you say to people, you're going to feed the pigs all this week, or it's your duty to make the bread for the entire community, they actually step up and feel more responsible and get an enjoyment from that and a sense of, a sense of well-being, which is, which is very clear. And the other thing about sharing things is that the holy grail of modern life, I think, is to find a sense of belonging. And that only comes about when you give up the plural, which is belongings, and you actually pull what you own. And some of the most interesting examples of communitarianism are very simple, in which people who live in mid-terrace houses have pulled up all the fences between their gardens, and instead of having a very small suburban garden, suddenly find themselves with one or two acres, and they only need one lawnmower between them all, or they only need one badminton net, and it becomes environmentally and socially so much more sustainable. Another aspect of, of, of communalism... And, and communitarianism is, as Viktor Frankl said about happiness, it's something that can't be pursued. It has to ensue. That very often people say, oh, I want, I want more community. And you say, well, what do you want it for? Well, just to be a community. Actually, unless there's a sense of purpose to why one wants to be a community, it doesn't actually happen. And so one always has to define the purpose behind the, the reason for forming a community. But the most important thing, I think, is that, and part of the reason we find ourselves in this dilemma of trying to find social solutions, is that we are all commoners without a commons. That for the last umpteen centuries, we've had a process of enclosure and privatisation and the creation of metaphorical moats that divide us and turn us into atomised, lonely individuals. And actually, the common denominator of all the people who come to our community seeking sanctuary is loneliness, that they don't have the bonds. And the very exciting thing about David's report is, is the way in which, if you overcome loneliness, suddenly people's lives are enriched. And, and one of the, sort of the, the themes that I come back to again and again is that old anonymous folk song that the law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common but lets the greater villain loose, who steals the common from off the goose. And I think that's what we've witnessed for centuries. That actually, and you know, I don't want to politicise it, but the modern equivalent of that, I believe, is the closure of public libraries, which makes no sense in what we're talking about. So if you or I were to steal a, a book from the library, we would be prosecuted. If you steal the library from the whole community, nothing happens. You know, in the last five years, almost 500 public libraries have closed. Now, in the context of what we're talking about, that just doesn't make sense. That is the nexus in which, in all so many communities, people come together and they research things and they read things and they make contacts and they have coffee and they do have the Victoria Sponge in the public library. So that is the, is the example of enclosure in which the common has been stolen. And, and, and the answer for me to the question of how we can unleash the power of community to address health and social problems is for all bodies, local and national government, to protect and increase the commons, to enable us to share more things, 
Because speaking personally from a, from a point of view of a, a community leader, the thing we struggle with is uh, questions of finances, of legal structures, the, the very technical things in which us vernacular kind of people who put community together on a, an ad hoc basis aren't very good at. And were a government able to increase the commons and what we share, then I think a large part of our problems would be solved. Hilary, would you like to respond? Yes, thank you. I mean, like Tobias, I think it's uh, really fantastic, the work, and to see the RSA embracing this is really exciting. And I wanted to tell you a story, actually, about what happened when... um, we put up a job centre, we went to a job centre in South London and we put up a fake door that said, get me out of here. But just a bit of context for that. As Rome was saying, for the last 10 years, I've been working at the Social Enterprise Participle. And those 10 years have been about practice. We've been building exemplars of what we think a future welfare state should look like, which thousands of people have been using these exemplars. And these have been services with the idea of relationship and community at their heart. And each year we took an area of the welfare state that we thought was failing and um, in a community setting we started to imagine what could be different, which was partly, as Matthew was saying, rethinking what the actual problem is rather than just trying to kind of solve something. And in 2009 we started with unemployment services and I think most people think that the current approach to this is failing, that the services don't work very well if you're young and you're starting out, they don't work very well if you're old and you want to reskill or change your work. They don't work very well if you've got a job but you want to kind of progress in the modern economy. Um, and uh, outside the door of the job centre, uh, the world looks completely different now to when the job centre and kind of welfare to work, I mean, I packaged that whole approach together, was invented. So there is still an idea of let's just find you a job, any job, rather than the fact that people are going to change their work up to eight times in their working lives and that there are whole places where the very idea of decent work has disappeared. So knowing about these kinds of failures led to the experience in the job centre and we wanted to explore how we could do things differently. So what happened when we put up our false door? Well, we asked people if they'd like to give us £5 to come through this door. And in the first hour, so many people came through this door. So we raised the price and we carried on raising the price and people wanted to come through. We were actually looking for people to work with and, in fact, we got too many people. And why did they come? Well, they came for two reasons. First of all, everybody who came through the door told us that they had to get out of the job centre because everybody in there is a shirk or a striver, and they weren't. They actually really wanted to find work. Um, Secondly, they were completely convinced that they were never going to find this work standing in a queue with other people who were only there because, like them, they were also looking for work, sending their CV round to the same employers. So I'm going to come back to the first point about the scroungers. But on the second point, it turns out that people's intuition is right because from a whole series of studies, both in this country and in the United States, Germany, we can see that most new jobs in the modern economy aren't advertised. So actually, if you want to find work, it doesn't work to stand in a queue. You need to be part of a diverse network, a wider community that can support you and knows where some of those opportunities might be. 
So with the people who came through our door, we started to work together and we started to kind of pool our resources and we met in cafes and the cinema and we started to talk about what stories we could tell about ourselves, what opportunities we knew, and we just began very, very informally pooling resource in a very sort of horizontal way. So not the idea that there's some kind of job advisor that you can work up towards, but just on a very horizontal level. And that was the start of a service that became called Backer because it kind of backs you to succeed and because you have to find a URL in the modern world to kind of set up a kind of online support system. Um, And over various iterations, this service developed. And we worked with over 2,000 people, and last week we published online our evaluation by PricewaterhouseCoopers, which actually does show that this approach we used, based really on building relationships, real face-to-face relationships with people, embedding that work in the wider community, outperformed existing services, often with the hardest to reach. And it was also cheaper. I mean, I don't really like... We'll come back to that point. I mean, I don't think it's kind of effective to talk about these services being cheaper because then you go down a kind of funny alleyway, but it is cheaper. So Backer is an example of a service that we built that puts relationships and the social network right at the centre of what's offered and also um, at the centre of the way that the team works Um, in offering roles for the community to step in and support people within their community. But we, um, the other example I want to touch on is our work with older people, Circle, because it's a very different sort of solution. So Circle, in many ways, isn't a service at all, and I think that's what most interests me, is when the responses we developed weren't actually services at all, because Circle was really a curated community, if you like, that provided older people with on-demand practical support and a sense of community. And like Backer, we designed Circle with um, a group of older people in South London. We started with 250 people. We scaled it to other locations, a total of 7,000 members. And the core offer remained true through that whole period to what people told us that they really wanted and remains true to the circles that are flourishing today, which was that people said they wanted on-demand support, no 800 number, somebody that will come and support you with things big or small when you need them. And they wanted to belong to a community. They wanted to make friends in the way that we all make friends and have a sense of belonging. They didn't want to be befriended or, you know, they wanted to build real relationships. I think the really interesting thing about Circles as they grew, which which speaks to some of the points that Tobias is making, is that in the Circles that have become really established, the social offer has taken over. So although those Circles do still provide practical support, actually the sense of ownership and the sense of task and the sense of belonging means that the friendships and the community themselves are providing those services to each other and that support without the kind of need to keep coming back to the centre and the 0800 um, number. Circle like Backer saves money, leads to better outcomes. We've had all sorts of evaluations and data on it. Um, And it's an approach which I've been calling relational welfare and I believe can be at the heart of so many of the ways we could rethink our public services. But I just wanted to share a couple of thoughts more generally in response to uh, what Matthew's been saying but also um, to the research that was published. So firstly, I think it's really important that we do understand the cause of things. And I think that this work is as much about recovering something that we've lost as inventing something new. So, I mean, to go back to unemployment, before the welfare state, uh, the support was informal. It was in the local community. It was basically based around the pub. You gave your local publicans some money, and when you lost your job, uh, you had a circle of mates 
you had some money saved with the local publican, but you also had people who said, you know, I know about this, or I can support you, Matthew, if you're feeling a bit down, or Tobias, you've been sitting there a bit long, can I kind of help you to do something? And all of that was swept away by the welfare state. But even so, right up to the 1970s, ways of working that did really have ideas of community and relationships at their heart persisted. If you ask a social worker that trained or worked in the 1970s, they can tell you about how they worked in many of the ways that the research that the RSA has been doing was just normal. People didn't think about it. It was the way to work and it had results. And actually, it was the introduction of the market, the cultures and structures of, first of all, the purchase and the provider and then the commissioner and the language of economics that began to erode the possibilities of the community. So I think if I've got one critique of the work here at the RSA, it is this still framing in very economic language, the idea of the dividend, the capital, which still keeps that predominant economic lens, which I think is often very problematic if we're really going to base ourselves in what people value. And the work of the academic uh, at Sussex, Theo Mars, shows how market-based approaches began to restructure from the 1970s, something that used to be seen as public action, into a process of service delivery and the transactional hierarchical ways of working that became so prevalent today. So I think it's really important that actually we problematise the very idea of where a service is needed and what is the idea of service delivery. Community approaches flourish in certain cultures, and it's why people felt that they had to get out of the job centre to work. And that sense of being a shirker that was internalised from policy language meant that really, within the existing services, we just couldn't begin to build a different approach. We had to take people out and come to a different place where something was common. And I think that that's really my second point, which is that authenticity is a really, really critical ingredient in this, which is, again, why I think that if we try to construct things around dividends, we're going to go awry. They have to be real. And in relational work, what happens inside an organisation or a community is really as important as the intended outcome. So I don't think we can think about this as some sort of output that we want to achieve or build, uh, you know, relationships as a result of a well-designed service, for example, as some people saw the work at Participle. I think that community and relationships need to be the input and they need to be absolutely central to the culture and the organisation. So at Participle, we talked about bringing your whole self to work and we learnt a lot about what it means to work in a relational way the really different forms of support that people need to do this work over time. It's not easy to run a backer workshop or support frail elderly people, and to remain open, to keep communities open, needs very different sorts of support. So I think perhaps I don't agree completely with Matthew that it's about the quality of the people. I think that's really important. We're not all emotionally open, just like we're not all dexterous. But much, much more important is it's the quality of the conditions we're working in. And we've had dramatic results when we've changed the conditions around people and seen people who used to work in a highly transactional way embrace a very, very different open way in our family work, for instance, with very, very rapid results. So I think these approaches can scale. At Participle, we've used technology, new forms of measurement to support the extension of our approaches. Sometimes it hasn't worked. Sometimes it really powerfully has. And I think that what we've shown and what the partners who are still extending the work of Participle have shown is that not only is this work needed, but it really is possible here today. Thank you, Hilary. Um, so now we'll go to David to, to talk about those dividends in a bit more depth. Yes, thank you very much. Um, Tobias was good enough to refer to this as David's report, but in fact, of course, it's uh, far from that. It represents uh, 
a very collegiate and very collaborative effort on the part of a great, you know, very great number of people. And I want to thank a couple of those very quickly. Manjit Bola, who works with me at the university, uh, Matthew Parsfield here, uh, Guy Marcus, Steve Broom, and all the team here at the RSA who were absolutely central to this piece of work. So thank you. It's been great to work with all those colleagues. Um, I, I, I'm just going to say a little bit about what we did, how we did it, and return uh, to some of the points that Matthew has made. Um, uh, notwithstanding Hillary's critique of um, the idea of, um, uh, of dividends, um, I, I just want to describe before dividends briefly that we uh, found. Our research suggests that there's a well-being dividend, that social connectedness correlates more strongly with well-being than social or economic characteristics, such as long-term illness, unemployment, or being a single parent. Uh, in a survey of t- nearly 3,000 people, the variable most... Uh, consistently associated with having higher subjective well-being was feeling part of a community. And the variables most negatively associated with well-being were identifying something or somewhere locally that you avoid or something that stops you taking part in a community. So the first dividend was a well-being dividend. The second dividend was a citizenship dividend. Uh, We found this to be highly uneven in its distribution. For example, 60% of the people we surveyed at the beginning of our research could not name anybody they knew who had the power or influence to change things locally. But nevertheless, we felt that there was latent power within local communities that lies in the potential of relationships between people, and it can be activated through the methods that we advocate from this study. Thirdly, a capacity dividend. Concentrating resources on networks and relationships rather than the troubled individual as an end user can have we felt beneficial effects which ripple out through social networks with positive effects not just on the individual but on, on, on their children, their partners, their friends and others. And finally, an economic dividend. There's evidence that investing in interventions which build social relationships uh, can improve employability, improve health, which has positive economic impact in itself and create savings in health and welfare expenditure. These dividends can be derived by a managed approach to unlocking what we call community capital. A word about how we did our work. We used um, a blend of deliberative community engagement, by which I mean we helped uh, local communities through a third-party umbrella group like a council of voluntary service or uh, a a development council, um, to um, identify local people who were to become uh, members, uh, researchers of their own communities, and we trained those people and supported them. They went out and collected survey data of social networks and well-being. We uh, surveyed the, or they they rather, surveyed the social networks of almost 3,000 people. Uh, We then did social network uh, mapping and analysis, which was played back to local people in public events, and on the basis of which we co-produced with the local community uh, some kind of an intervention that they, was of their, their choosing, of their making, and, um, uh, and then looked at evaluating it in each site. So I think one of the lessons here is that the kind of research that we were doing depends utterly on the careful, measured, sustained, and appreciative engagement of these people as active citizens. That was part of our process. Uh, just picking up on some of the points that Matthew's made, I want to um, identify some key themes that I think to have been important in this research. Um, firstly, the research is important for representing the kind of approach to evidence that Matthew has alluded to. That's to say, 
uh, we were using an action-based, practical and participative approach to our task, and one that for me has always been centrally concerned with the scope for innovation at the level of local communities. We were doing what we cared about, and in this sense, this was an exercise drawn from values. Secondly, it's important for the way in which we looked at a diversity of co-produced activities aimed at creating and strengthening social connections, affirming the design role of interventions to be in the hands of communities themselves. And in this way, we exemplified the principle of communitarianism that has to do with solidarity. It's important, too, for the sense that this work conferred on communities um, around the scope to think of themselves in different ways, to reflect on the assets represented by relationships themselves as a different and often unsurfaced, unforeseen uh, form of community strength. In exposing the networks that individually they were part of, the process allowed people to revisualize who they are to each other. And that really is an important um, aspect of this, it seems to me. And in doing that, it revealed that the individual nature of social capital uh, is what is, in effect, community capital. It's important for situating this idea of community capital within a context that clearly includes, but is, but is absolutely not solely about, a response to austerity politics. Martin Knapp and his team provided, provided a critical appraisal of the economic case for connected communities, which is compelling and in current conditions, one has to say, uh, inescapable. But in seeing this as just one of the dividends from the connected communities approach, our work goes beyond instrumentalism as well as incrementalism uh, to illustrate a set of processes that we might say has something of um, Etzioni's moral dialogue about it. It embodies the quality of being intrinsically good as well as being purposeful and practical. And finally, it's important for demonstrating the essential role of public services in facilitating effective community capital. Tobias, I think you're absolutely right about the libraries. Our work didn't start or finish with the notion that community capital is some kind of cost-free alternative to properly funded public services. In helping to show the extent to which communities can utilise the assets of social and community networks to protect well-being and prevent the negative impacts of social isolation... We have shown, I think, how essential co-design and co-production between properly funded public services and community organisations are in uh, delivering community capital, in bringing it into being. I want to uh, amplify the point made by Matthew that promoting beneficial social networks requires the proactive engagement of public service organisations at all levels, organisations that weave, support and broker, rather than, or as well as providing, will be doing something that may require them to reevaluate the relationship of professional to lay knowledge and to generate the cultural change in professional uh, leadership and organisational behaviours needed to get this relationship, this re-evaluated relationship, right. So um, Connected Communities has been about putting some additional flesh on the bones of a communitarian approach that argues for a more lateral way of constructing civic virtue, if you will. And doing this, it's revealed a wealth of individual power and passionate individuals on whom to draw. The example of Merton in East Durham, 
is the one which I'm most familiar with, and here our work with an initially thin network of isolated single mothers showed just how much latent individual commitment there is to reaching out to others, how great the local power to create new forms of interdependency are. The results, which were really warming for the, for the, for the women and those doing the work, um, were in their way profound, Women talked about the degree to which the social network that they were now part of had enabled them to develop levels of confidence such to inspire the start of a university course, to do GCEs, to volunteer at a children's centre, to become a welfare champion, to go to the gym where you didn't feel confident in doing so before, and so on and so forth. So we saw at first hand a very clear um, effect of what we were with the uh, participants locally trying to achieve. Those, those results were really warming, and as I say, I think in their own way, profound. These women were supported in the outcomes that they achieved by local third sector and statutory services working in consort and competently and comprehensively blurring the boundaries between state bureaucracy and civil society, just as uh, uh, was discussed earlier, offering what could be described as a relational understanding of the women's needs and capacities as citizens, respecting not merely their rights as individuals to independence, but their growing aspiration to interdependence. So, uh, to conclude, as Matthew said, it's reasonable to assume that the habits of individual agency, collaboration and problem-solving inculcated by these programmes will continue, making it more likely that they will be able to respond actively and creatively to future challenges. We, the Centre for Citizenship and Community at the University, have already seen a breadth of national and international interest in the methods behind this work and how they might be applied, uh, particularly in the field of ageing, particularly in the field of housing. So there's undoubtedly much more to do in seeing these experiences as evidence. Um, And we don't underestimate, indeed we celebrate the complexity Um, of uh, the the, the future work that we will need to do. But we think that the report uh, reflects an important start in illuminating community capital and its dividends and in showing what can be achieved with what might be thought of as a practicable shared literacy of community. Um, I take the point entirely that we mentioned community 600 times and I take the point that it needs to be defined in any particular case but I think the landscape of um, statutory service practice is replete with the failure to ask the question, what does this person's community mean in any given set of circumstances to them? And I think if we've served the purpose of uh, having that question asked more regularly and more constructively, then I think the report will have, have done something worthwhile. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you to our panel for really giving us a a good appraisal of the different views of um, community um, and how communitarian efforts can really be supported. It's very interesting um, contemplating your different responses about what a shared literacy of community might look like. And the languages used in the report were um, necessarily, I think, defined in an economic logic in order to engage with certain parts of the policy community, um, while at the same time giving a gravitas to work that many people would describe as quite prosaic or, you know, the work of the man on the street. So it gave it a sort of different tone. 
it made me think about the multiple languages that are needed to navigate between the different actors in, in public services and communities, um, public servants, policymakers, and the man on the street. And I'm interested to start um, the questions with thinking about what all of you, I think, have referred to, about the need for evidence of communitarian um, activities. You described the problems with a sort of over, over-controlling state, which works to the checklist. Matthew mentioned the need for evidence and deliverology. I think you used that really extraordinary term. Um, how should we look at evaluation and metrics differently, you know, thinking about the different languages we have to use to do so in the future to ensure that communitarian efforts don't re- become reduced to, to checkbox exercises but still have that kind of full, full picture that you described very beautifully in your, um, in your overview? Should we start with you, Hilary? So, I mean, you're right. I mean, we had, in our work, we have to be very, very pragmatic and we need to speak to all those different audiences. So... Um, at Participle, we use three frameworks of measurement. We measured standard outcomes for any service. You know, with our older people, we saw visits to GPs that were unnecessary go down. That's great. People had somebody to talk to. They didn't go to their GP. This was important data for a local authority. We measured money because we're also pragmatic and we know that we can't do anything that's more expensive. We need to save money. And, in fact, we you know, can't even have a social return on investment in the current climate. We need to put money back in banks somewhere. Um, But also, really, really critical was that we worked with a capability framework. We um, talked about what capabilities do you actually need as a person and a community to flourish in the 21st century, and then we measured those capabilities, which were around relationships, working and learning, and contribution and belonging to community. So everybody who worked with us also collected that data, which meant that if we did have a circle, for instance, in Rochdale... Uh, there's a a cultural link that's underpinned because where you shine the data is where you're shining the spotlight. That's actually, that is profoundly what counts, so it was really important. But I also think the other thing that was really important in those um, capability uh, metrics was that people could use them for themselves. They had personal meaning. So I think it's really important that data isn't about sort of somebody up there collecting data, that this is, that we think about how we can use this data so that people can make their own meaning and can build their own things from it and are watching their own. So I don't think we had it perfectly, but I definitely think that you can't shift systems if you don't shift the measures, because no matter what you talk about and you do, if you are still counting the old things, systems do not shift. Thank you. Matthew, do you want to comment? Uh, well, I'm keen to hear what, what questions come from the floor. I mean, I would, it's a two lines. One is the thing I said in the speech, which is I think we try, should try to define outcomes in more humanistic terms and the good thing is that that's what citizens seem to want so as we all know for example when you ask citizens what the most important thing for them in terms of the way the health service treats them they will talk about feeling that they are being respected listened to and given time and this is as important as the success of clinical interventions to people so we we need to define what matters uh, in broader ways uh, longer term ways um, and I don't think this is, this is about us imposing some kind of progressive ideology on people. I think this is what people themselves uh, say that they want. But the other thing is, I, I also think that has been implied, the whole kind of social investment movement has been a bit of a damp squib for a whole variety of reasons that we don't need to go into here. I've written about it in other places. But I still think we should, we should pursue... An ideal, and that ideal is that that we're able to put together a set of interventions which demonstrate the capacity to reduce unnecessary public investment 
so that we can refocus that investment on things which improve people quality people so the ultimate idea that there are interventions which which well 20 years ago the commission on social justice put it like this they said we need more fences at the top of the cliff and fewer ambulances at the bottom and I still think that however hard it is and however much social investment has been in Damsgrave and social impact bonds, we still need to look for the kinds of interventions that would be, enable us to get into that kind of positive cycle whereby working with communities, preventing problems, allows us to invest in things like libraries and youth provision and other things and get out of where we are now, which is money is almost all the money now simply goes on emergency interventions. Or managing risk. Or managing risk. Taking Matthew's cue, going to the audience. Um, lady in the front here. Thank you. Um, most interesting. Um, I've just finishing reading Sherry Turkle's latest book, which is about recovering conversations. And the line that struck me, and I want to use as a heading, is conversation leads to community, leads to communion. And I find communion really interesting. All these comms, and it is about one-to-one, face-to-face dialogue. Because the other book that's really interesting is Andrew Keane's The Internet is Not the Answer, where he talks about the overemphasis on marketing and economics and measurements, which can get in the way of these sorts. It's not an either-or, but I think there's something really... I'm really concerned about the lack of face-to-face, and the library thing just hit me between the eyes, because that is just such a terrible abomination in the face of whatever but when you said recovering recovering conversation and that, and that's kind of you know the way people are thinking now because her previous book was alone together and how lonely people are and she's one of the originators of this stuff do you have a comment on that tobias in terms of how to reconvene conversation um i was more interested in the use of the word recovery in terms of, you know, we work with a lot of people who are struggling with addiction and therefore it's a, you know, dry and a drug-free community. In terms of evaluating outcomes, if someone is a drug user, it's very easy. And if someone is an ex-offender, if they don't relapse, there are sort of certain black and white ways of evaluating outcome. Um, the other thing I'd say about in terms of using the language of economics, the dividend, capital, so on and so forth. You know, I don't think it would be a bad thing to go back to John Ruskin's idea of measuring what he called ilf, you know, which is the opposite of wealth, because we talk about wealth and we, we think we can measure things financially. You know, we go back to economics as a measurement, but actually the unintended consequences of things that originally look quite good but actually have bad consequences. Ilf is a concept that I would, you know, champion. I'll try and find a better word for it. <laughs> Thank you. That was really interesting. Uh, my name is Sukhvinder Kostubs, and um, I, I want to just pick up on this very alluring notion of community. Um, and, of course, we know it can also be quite idealised and, and flawed. And uh, uh, I know from my own experience of growing up in a, a migrant inner-city uh, community that uh, at times it was exclusive, and I would also describe it as petrified, i.e. frozen in, in time to some extent. Um, and, and, and I suppose what I'm interested in is how you begin to stimulate communities that have reciprocity and trust, but are also dynamic and open, and where you have people that are interested in each other without being intrusive uh, uh, about each other. And, and some research that I've, I've just conducted with the University of Birmingham um, on building contingent capacity is about a framework for 
organising services around individuals and their networks of interest. And I think that one of the points that came across to me in that research was that this requires skills that people uh, in uh, their communities of interest require skills to actually uh, build reciprocity and, and trust. Uh, David, you mentioned appreciative inquiry. I think that's one way of doing it. Hilary, you mentioned the capability uh, uh, framework. Uh, but I, I, I wonder how much of it is about being able to police social powers, um, uh, our own social powers, but also the power flows within the, uh, the networks around us and you know, and I, I think it's that. Do we recognise uh, the extent to which communities of interest are actually about power sharing and our ability really to moderate that in ourselves and in those around us? David, do you want to comment on Well, I mean, it is incredibly messy, and I think you're right to point that out. And, you know, my, my idea about the literacy of community is really not to suggest that anything is easy, but that we need to think about what community means in any given set of circumstances to people. And it might be where they live, or it might be the, the, the community of identity with which they identify. And I think we have to think really quite smartly about what it is in any given set of circumstances. And then I think we probably... I, I think we should probably reintroduce some kind of community development function attaching to public services so as to really generate positive community uh, approaches. It, it, it isn't easy, and we know there are many negative community approaches. We know that communities can be excluding and, and toxic as well as open and empowering. So um, I, I think, you know, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to uh, uh, appear to be too naive about, about what we're saying here. But I do think that the evidence for good community is very often locked up in the people that are it and whose voice is very rarely heard. And scalability, coming back to that last question, is, it seems to me, um, frequently something which people themselves can speak to. And uh, it, it, it's conveying those messages that, that is so very important to defining what policy on community might look like. Thank you. There's a strong sense of déjà vu as far as I was concerned, especially with what Matthew said and to some degree what Tobias said. I grew up in a half-obliterated central London neighbourhood where the surfeit of community was almost overwhelming. But of course it diminished once the local hospital was closed, the local surgery was closed, the local shops closed, local police station closed. But now there's something replacing it. I'm a member of the City and Hackney CCG, the Clinical Commissioning Group who have a body called the uh, Public and Patient Involvement Committee. Now, those 15 people who sit around the table do immense amount of good in terms of community building. They come forward with ideas, they have solidarity, and they push this forward to the authority that grants the money because these initiatives are so successful. So there is a groundswell of opinion. There are people looking out for those that are mostly isolated, those with comorbidities, and those who've been left on their own because of early deaths and so on. And it's working very, very well. So I'm suggesting that maybe you're being overindulgent in terms of looking at this in the way you are. There are things happening out there, and they're happening in spite of what we're being given. The, the very best thing that Lansley ever did in terms of his reform bill was to allow the CCG to form these committees. The patient participation groups is another good idea, where people do have a possibility of building local communities. And believe me, in areas of deprivation, it's working very, very well. Thank you. Um, it was interesting, actually, because that man's point 
more or less blended into mine. Um, thank you. Uh, the talk this evening has just been spectacular. Um, far more reaching, outreaching than I could have envisaged. Um, what I wanted to uh, go on to ask you guys, actually, was uh, in view of the fact that a significant proportion of the public is dependent on the public sector, health and housing. Um, this question is actually directed to Toby, to, uh, Tobias, I beg your pardon, and Hillary. Um, is this not now a time for the voluntary sector to rethink the delivery of services to not just supplement but to empower itself? Yeah. Those are very complimentary questions, you're right. Um, dependence on public sector health and housing, we can start with you, Tobias, and then I'd put it to the rest of the panel. Are we being overindulgent is the summary of your wonderfully put question. I mean, yeah, it would be wonderful to empower ourselves. And in terms of, you know, when I think about residential communities, which the people who've really slipped through a lot of the nets end up living with us. People who have, you know, come back from Hellmand with PTSD, people who've been rough sleepers for a long time, people coming straight out of prisons. Sometimes there's only a residential solution for people like that. And all it needs, and I'm sorry, it does come back to money often, is a fairly small capital investment, and then it, it can run itself. And it really does. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessary to reinvent the wheel. There's centuries of wisdom about how human beings can live together. And actually, the greater the blend of, of gender, ages, races and problems, the better it works. But it's very difficult to talk about empowering people unless there is some kind of ability to actually, you know, buy the community woodland or to buy the, you know, if you're talking about a residential community, a 12-bedroom house in any part of the country costs a lot of money. So that's, that's where the empowerment needs a bit of sort of anabolic steroids from somewhere else. Um, and that's, I mean, someone we haven't mentioned this evening who's a hero of mine is Eleanor Ostrom, um, who you probably know is a sort of Nobel Prize winner, wonderful political scientist who, who's, who's written a lot of theories about uh, the commons and it comes back to your point about who holds the power. And actually, it's a very interesting balance between uh, having an open door, inclusive community. But also her first point is that there needs to be a restriction of who uses the commons. So that it's very clearly defined. Otherwise it's a free-for-all. Otherwise it means nothing. And it's one of the lessons of residential community that you can't offer sanctuary to everyone. And that it takes quite a lot of wisdom to know, know your limits on that. I mean Ostrom is, is, is wonderful on all these, these things. Would you like to comment? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think... I think there's a genuine difference between my approach and a kind of... I mean, I think, actually, I think, Hilary, you and I may disagree about this stuff, because I think, in a sense, you're arguing that talking about market mechanisms, um, talking about kind of targets and things like that, it kind of infects the system, makes a kind of communitarian relational approach impossible or, or much more difficult. And I, I kind of don't agree with that. And it, 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 I, I think, see, I think the NHS is fascinating in this regard. I think in many ways, 
the ingredients in the NHS are the right ingredients for a service that really works incredibly well. But I think most of the time, unfortunately, it doesn't feel like that to people within the system. And it's great that the practice that you're describing is so successful. So I think that what the NHS tries to be is a combination of a a strategy, a set of targets in areas that need to be targets, uh, areas of clinical governance where it's important. I mean, I've seen the data years ago of the kind of differences in performance of different surgeons. And, you know, however communitarian you are, you do not want surgeons who kill people on a regular basis to be allowed to carry on, you know, however good their relationships are, to be frank. So, you know, um, so you need strategy. Uh, you need effective allocation of resources. You need targets. You need forms of audit and inspection. That is all necessary. Uh, in my view, you do also need scope for competition, for innovation, for people to be incentivized to uh, succeed and those who succeed to be able to succeed some more. And you need uh, that kind of capacity-building element, which is around the empowerment of people, uh, of networks, of patient groups, uh, the kind of work that you're talking about. So the elements, the ingredients are there. The problem is, over and over and over again in the NHS, these things just crash into each other in the most disastrous um, of ways. The elements of the NHS are marketised and other bits aren't, and the bits that aren't crash into the bits that are. That you have forms of community empowerment and engagement and they crash up against decisions that are made in a very kind of traditional hierarchical way, which often discredits those forms of community uh, engagement. So I think the question that I ended with is the one that fascinates me, which is how is it you bring these kind of different approaches together in ways in which they, 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 they work together? And it's, it's very, very hard. Because I think if you are sitting in the hierarchy, if you're sitting in community uh, engagement, or if you're sitting in a kind of commissioning role or market-oriented role, you just see the world in different ways. So getting, these, getting those perspectives to combine is difficult. But I think if you don't combine them, The problem is, and the history of communitarian intervention shows this, if you can't get communitarian interventions to work alongside other ways of working, the problem is that you get good practice, but it ends up bouncing off the system. It ends up not actually leading to system change in the way that we might want. Hilary, would you like to respond to that? Well, I... I I, I mean, I... I, How can I make a succinct response to that? I don't disagree, actually. I mean, I think, you know, in the same way that you use a hip replacement, you know, that that there are different points in the system that need different kind of mixes of this. I mean, who owns what really does matter. I mean, you can't ask people to participate in something that is fundamentally owned by somebody else and isn't going to be theirs. I mean, this, this is where these things become, you know, like with our circles. Who owns our circles? I mean... I think that the scale of circle was limited by the fact that we had a social enterprise model which meant that we owned the way of doing it. And that was the only way to kind of keep a team together that could spread the practice, but at the same time was quite complex in, in how you could spread it. So I think, I, I think these things are quite complicated. And I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be put on kind of one side or the other, although I definitely think that you, know, you talked, Matthew, about how uh, your point number two, what values do we want to reinforce... And if I think this absolute dominance of economic values is extremely recent historically, and so I am arguing for an opening of that rather than an eradication of it, definitely. Thank you. Well, we've sadly run out of time. I think um, the, the panel has succinctly put, the, I think, the case for community-based evidence that can't rely on evidence alone, and we can't entirely speak in an economic logic. Um, it's given us real food for thought for thinking about what values do we want our policy to reinforce Um, and Matthew gave us some real 
thinking around three powers of individual agency, um, solidaristic power, and where the hierarchy fits into that mix. And there were some very interesting um, thoughts uh, presented around recovering something lost as well as creating something new. So hopefully you've been given plenty of food for thought. Thank you very much to our panellists. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.